0: This is The Chronicles Podcast,
1: a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America.
0: Well, welcome everybody to another episode of the Chronicles Magazine podcast. I'm very delighted to have with us today Charles Hayward. He's been a blogger and a tweeter and he does a lot of book reviews. I've really enjoyed his book reviews over the years and um he, I find him a fascinating mind. We have a lot of the same trajectory and uh, I think we get along really well. We'll we'll see what happens here in the next 30 minutes. But he blogs over at the worthyhouse.com and recently he did a review of patrick denine's new book called regime change uh, many of you have seen it patrick denine is one of the ringleaders of the so called uh, post liberal uh, order and kind of that's that's sort of the the name that they're going by and it's it's we're going to get into a little bit about uh, what we think about the their agenda and their um their instincts and their demeanor and the way that they approach um sort of the end of the liberal 20th century american Empire. It's it's uh you know people have seen Patrick Denine and Adrian Vermeule, and um there's one other person that's that, that's like sort of a trio there. But we're going to get into Patrick's book. Uh, Charles, you wrote your review of it just last week. I saw you it on Twitter, and I said this is a good conversation to have. So thank you for coming on. I'm delighted to talk to you.
1: Well, I am pleased to be here, and as you say, I do write a lot of book reviews. though so a substantial portion of my book reviews are actually. My own thoughts masquerading as a book reviews, so I, I can't claim to be as uh, incisive necessarily in reviewing, uh, or rather, I am incisive in reviewing, but I, I add additional things, and hopefully that that adds value to the reader.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I think I think book reviews aren't just like book reports. Like we're in fifth exactly. grade, and we have to you know list things that we learned, but they're actually just platforms to you know in, engage with ideas. Um, so Patrick, I will did, say, I will say a yeah.
1: main thing: the the review is actually getting pretty wide play. Uh, in part, that's, I think, because Deneen's book is sinking like a stone. And so yeah, it's the, being a big fish in a small pond because there's not going to be a huge pond of reviews, unlike it was for his earlier book, Why Liberalism Failed. But Ross Douthat, the House conservative at The New York Times, who I don't dislike, but he, he is kind of the House conservative, uh, is um, wrote a, a piece on it, which was a, a good piece, but he mentioned that it was subject to criticism, both from the left and from the right. And for from the right, he linked my piece. So I get New York Times traffic now. I'm very excited. Oh, well,
0: there you go. That's. <laughs> I wonder if he knows other books that you favorably reviewed, if he's aware of. I've reviewed a couple of things. But I mean, yeah. I, I
1: like Ross Douthat, uh quite a bit. I think he's, he's a smart guy. And he's, he's not subject to some of the debilities that I perceive in someone like Vermeule. Mm-hmm. I have not read Downat's latest book uh, last year, I think, which was about, I think, his struggles with Lyme disease. Kind uh, <laughs> of not political enough for my tastes. Right. Uh, but I'm sure it was a good book as well.
0: Right. Patrick Deneen, um, what was your exposure to him and his ideas before this book? Did you read Why Liberalism Failed?
1: I've read all of uh, Deneen's books in this genre. So he's actually, his first book in this genre was a collection of essays called Conserving America with a question mark, which I think was published in 2015 or 2016. And then some of those same themes, uh, but not all of them were covered. And the ones that were, were, uh, were covered, obviously, in more detail in his 2017, 2016 book, Why Liberalism, failed, which I actually thought was inferior to some of the thought in conserving America. I think, it, 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 I'm not sure that Denine. some people just aren't cut out to write longer books for a variety of reasons. The late Joe Sobran was like that. He was mm-hmm. incredibly good at as an essayist, but he never could really write lengthy books. And he said he admitted this, uh, and that was of course before that, you know, William F. Buckley, that Judas, as I like to call him, excommunicated sobrand from the conservative movement. Be that as I may, I'm getting off track. So Deneen is, uh, this is kind of the third book in what I regard, I mean, it's not a trilogy in the sense of a fiction trilogy with an arc, but it's a, a set of his books that is supposed to, as I understand it, and I think he would agree with this, outline his post-liberal project. The earlier ones outlining the philosophical defect at the heart of the Enlightenment, which I 100% agree with. And this most recent book being "What We Should Do About It," which was disappointing.
0: Did you have so you read "Why Liberalism Failed"? Um,
1: what did you think of that book first? Well, I thought that book was fantastic, and part of that was the the moment at which it caught me. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I like to say, uh, to my eternal shame, I used to be, for example, a big supporter of George W. Bush. God brought him, as I like to add next to mm-hmm. his name. Now, like you know, Muslims say peace be upon him for Muhammad, I had <laughs> not brought him for George W. Bush, but um, it's somewhat less complimentary than the uh, appellation for Muhammad, but it's it caught me at a moment when I was transitioning from a, uh, a kind of uh, the American founding was excellent and we need to get back to that to the Enlightenment is inherently defective and we need to move to a form of post-liberalism, though I was not calling it post-liberalism. At that point, I mean, obviously, I didn't invent the term post-liberalism, but internally to my own writing, I was not even calling it post-liberalism. So Denine's book, I think, was for a lot of people, along with a book which I regard as even better, Rissard the Good Coast, The Demon and Democracy is, is a short book, but is also somewhat in the same genre or vein, and is, is extremely good. So those two books were, were instrumental in my own thinking and crystallizing my own thinking that we need to throw out the entire Enlightenment project back to 1789 the Enlightenment being defined as a political philosophy, not as advancement in general, which it's propagandists claim for. But advancement in general, particularly scientific advancement, has quite literally nothing whatsoever to do with the Enlightenment, whatever Steven Pinker may say. Mm-hmm. So that is also another topic. So we're, we're, I'm putting my nose down all these rabbit holes and then then pulling back. But back to Deneen, the, his, his book was an important book at an important time, not just for me, but for a lot of people. Because it was the first intellectual hefty book or book with intellectual heft that really outlined why it is that the Enlightenment project was defective from the start.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: no one had really written in that vein before uh, for a mainstream audience, except uh, esoteric people, people who are forgotten, largely like Carl Schmitt or Joseph de Meister, or people like that, or cranks. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think Deneen did a valuable service in introducing this concept to a broad audience And in a sense, making it intellectually respectable. So that book was fantastic. Mm
0: -hmm. And then he publishes Regime Change, which as you say, is sort of what can we do about it? And I guess like, uh, well, let's start with the favorable things. Like, Does anything stand out to you as um, something that you would endorse or are the good things sort of just more echoes of the themes of why liberalism failed? Yeah.
1: Well, there's a couple of problems with the book, many problems with the book, but leaving aside the substantive problems, which, which we'll get to it. The only good things about the book are the parts it repeats about from why liberalism failed. And somehow, and I didn't put this in my review, but it's true. I I thought I'd be ganging up, beating a guy when he's down. The writing is terrible. Like he needed Mm -hmm. an editor. Uh, He just, his earlier writing was much crisper. And I don't know what, what went wrong or whether he had a better editor before. But he basically hits the same themes, but in a much more meandering fashion. And so, there's really no no value except as a as background, which really should be unnecessary at this point. Uh, when you write a book called Regime Change, it's meant to follow up on another book. You would think that it link, a good a third of the book is a summary of why liberalism failed, which is frankly kind of pointless. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, it's not bad in the sense that if you have never been exposed to these things, it's useful useful to know some of the thought. It's just not it's not very well done. So, I think a lot of people who came to come to this fresh, not having read his other other stuff. Will not really understand what he's driving at. I, I mean, I do because this is what I focus on, and other people do. It's not just me, but I think a, a, a person coming to this for the first time would, would really struggle to understand where he's coming from.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think of the concept of a post liberalism as he defines it? Uh, I, I don't know, because I, I don't know if you've like subscribed to his Substack or anything like that, but I mean, he has this, and I think it's a great phrase. Do you think it's, um, do you think he serves it well?
1: Uh, What's a great phrase? Post-liberalism? Post-liberalism, yeah. Sure. I mean, the idea of post-liberalism boiled down is that the liberalism... Deneen uses liberalism in the same way that I would use the left... Well, we both mean the same thing, which is basically Enlightenment thought focused on emancipation and egalitarianism. I think liberalism is the wrong wrong thing, but especially the Boomers it conveys, like Michael Dukakis in 1992 or something. I mean, it's it's not really meaningful in the same way that the left or in the Enlightenment is. Nonetheless, I think it's you know, post-liberalism, meaning that he he does it, it is it, uh, he doesn't define it crisply though. That is, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, he, it meanders somewhat, especially in this book, in a way it didn't in Why Liberalism Failed. In Why Liberalism Failed, he focused mostly on the first part of the left dyad, meaning emancipation, liberty. Mm-hmm. And he talked about ordered liberty and the understanding, philosophical understanding of liberty throughout the ages as opposed to libertinism or license. And that that is very well done. But when he says post-liberalism, I don't think, unless, I mean, I don't have the book handy, like literally in front of me, and I don't have a photographic memory, but I don't think he offered a pithy definition of post-liberalism in this book. Uh, I think he he kind of assumed that what he was saying distilled down to this is liberalism and something else that comes after it is post- liberalism.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And so in regime change, his objective is to is sort of to rethink, you know, where America needs to go. It's kind of reached a dead end in a sense, and it needs to be uh, reconstituted or refreshed? Um, talk about some of what he what he has in mind. Is is he someone that's a tear down the burning house, or is he a salvage <laughs> a salvage uh, some of the institutions kind of guy?
1: And he focuses on America, but I mean, really philosophically, what he really means is the West, but really America America is the focus. Mm-hmm. And his his the book is titled "Regime Change," and he he what he calls for at kind of the highest level is a change in the elite. So when I say and people on the right in general say the regime, what they mean is in essence is the interlocking set of elites who rule us in a leftward direction and control politics, culture, the media. Let me so let on. me let me jump in there for a second um he
0: doesn't have in mind dynamics between republicans and democrats which is really something that's important Is like we have to look Absolutely. beyond that we have to look beyond that he's not he's not attacking democrats he's attacking a certain milieu a certain political milieu that overarches the entire apparatus of government
1: he does not use the term uni party but that's the term that people w- w- would use what he means is the ruling class or the elites i mean mm-hmm. other people have written extensively on elite theory Obviously, Machiavelli wrote on, and uh, in the modern times, James Burnham wrote on elite theory. Nima Parvini has written a book uh, recently on it. So elite theory is a well-understood thing. It's not very well understood by Patrick Deneen, as it happens, uh, mm-hmm. but he, what he is referring to at kind of a high level is the elites, the people who are in charge. And he thinks, quite correctly, that they suck, and that it's the, 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 the our elites are... And he says this in so many words, our elites constitute a tyranny. He doesn't really define tyranny, but presumably he uses it in the in the traditional understanding of it, which is a, uh, you know, the Greek tyranny monarchy kind of distinction that is oligarchy uh, versus aristocracy, a group of people who are ruling for their own benefit to the detriment of the common people. And in this case, to the detriment of the common good, if there's a single focus of Deneen's book, it's that we need to have rulers who rule for the common good, rather than for their individual interests. By which he means, again, he doesn't draw this distinction clearly, but it's an important distinction. He means only in part their material interests, but probably even more so their ideological interests, that Mm -hmm. is their desire for for left hegemony. But again, that's somewhat gets lost in the weeds. Deneen is not great at making crisp distinctions about important matters.
0: Right. I've seen some criticism of the book um, that basically... Can be summarized by saying he doesn't like fully or or completely abandon some of the themes of liberalism. What do you think about that?
1: Well, that's exactly right. That is he he. If I had to boil down my objections to the book, it's not that Deneen's a bad person, or even that he's a leftist. It's that his book and I think his own personal philosophy is neither fish nor fowl. It's betwixt and between, you know, lukewarm. That is, he says that we live in a tyranny, but his solutions to that are basically, there's two major problems. His solutions are silly, frankly. Like, Mm -hmm. let's expand the House of Representatives to 6,000 people. And that way, somehow, magically, we're going to get a totally new regime where the old regime will give up all its power. And the common people and the new aristocracy that will arise from somewhere will rule together in harmony in a big big old healing circle, as I put it in my review. So that's... it. There's no path from here to there. It might, in fact, be the case that if you eliminated everyone in the current elite and replaced them with a new elite and then had 6,000 people in the House of Representatives, you might, in fact, get something for the common good. But there's no path from here to there. Mm-hmm. Even if you add, if you increase the size of the House of Representatives, you wouldn't get what he's looking for. you just get more clowns in the House of Representatives. it just be silly. <laughs> uh, but the, the other problem, which is related, is that he he refuses to, uh, to abandon some of the core principles of liberalism, because he's afraid, he doesn't say this, but this is my read, because he's afraid of being persona non grata and being called, particularly being called a racist, but also a sexist or whatever, you know, a hate monger, whatever the, the terms of the left are, to attempt to discredit without argument their opponent, he wants to avoid being called a racist, for example. And so therefore, he doesn't, he he says, that he, he doesn't acknowledge the, the problems that are inherent in in racial matters in America, but blames them all on white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, white people are to blame for everything. Uh, black people are to blame for nothing. And this is a standard left trope because it's part of their governing structure and the way they get power. But it's and it's anathema to the principles that in exact opposite and, and contradicts the principles that he he enunciates. So he he's unwilling. He doesn't have the courage of his convictions. Who was that? Was that John F. Kennedy, who supposedly who had a ghost written someone book? like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think Bobby Kennedy is back. Oh my gosh, everything <laughs> old is new again. Yeah. Anyway. Right. Uh, uh, so um, so it, 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 he pulls his punches, right, which makes his book functionally worthless. It, uh-huh. and as I said in my review, it, this should have been the capstone of his project. And instead, this book is going to be forgotten in a month or two. And you can see that already. I mean, it doesn't have hardly any reviews on anywhere on Amazon. Anyway. Nobody cares because it's, not, it's a, not a book worth having.
0: Right. It's interesting. Like one of the things that you mentioned in your review, uh, one of the standard conservative um, you know, uh, explanations of of like sort of the crisis in black culture is to look at the the fatherlessness and the crisis of like current family structures. Um, but as you point out, he doesn't even take that standard conservative view. He looks all the way back 150 years and blames um, white people during the, the slave era.
1: Right, he bl- and more specifically, it's not slavery. He blames all modern day black problems in America on slave families being broken up. Um, which is is something obviously happened during slavery, though ooh, the extent to which that happened is is, is unclear to me. But obviously, you, no serious person can think that's the root of modern day problems. And more typically, people would describe any number of other things, whether that's the cultural damage done by the great society, or whether it's you know, Jim Crow and housing discrimination or inherent differences between blacks and whites, whatever. People come up with these different explanations and maybe it's some combination of those, but I've, I've literally never heard this as an explanation for modern day black problems. Mm-hmm. I don't know where, and it's not clear to me why he would he would ascribe it to this, except to to basically make it, it's like saying, Cain, your ancestor did this, so now you have the mark of Cain, white people. It's, it's completely bizarre. Mm-hmm. Does
0: this so this does this uh, book? Uh, I mean, you talk a little bit about you know your own instinct, which is to tear down the burning house. You know, this thing is full <laughs> of mold and rats, and it's something that needs to be completely restructured. And yet, you treat this book as if um, he is just trying to salvage things and trying to reconstruct it, and he's not really he's not willing to gut the foundations.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, look, nobody likes to gut the foundations it's unpleasant and it's dangerous. And as the old joke goes, people who wish for revolutions always in their own head imagine it, that the revolution happens around them while they stay still and nothing happens to them. And in real life, when you start tearing away at the foundations of your own house, all sorts of bad things are likely to happen to you and your family and everybody you know. So you shouldn't undertake those projects lightly. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we're not asking Patrick Deneen to undertake that project. We're asking him to honestly, intellectually analyze whether that project is inevitable, given the, the fatal uh, illness that he identifies, which he clearly identifies. He says, again, in so many words, we live in a tyranny, but he won't come up with any, any solutions that, or even things that might happen that might change that. He just, it, 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 it just kind of dies with a whimper. And mm-hmm. along the way, he he basically adopts a variety of of left premises and doesn't take any any really bold stances of, of, of any kind, you know, reality-based stances. He, you know, he doesn't, for example, call for reworking sex roles to be reality-based so that uh, men are preferred in jobs and women are deliberately discriminated against as against men with families. I mean, that would be a, a radical by modern day standards uh suggestion to to remake the site and he doesn't say anything at all about sex roles, except as I, I complain he adopts using she and her as the generic pronoun which is yeah. a basis to left demands i mean as someone who claims to be a post-liberal who uses she as the generic pronoun <laughs> you know, is a clown I mean, Or or he he's he, he's he's a weakling whose editors for whatever reason demand that and he, he gives in rather than saying i'm not going to publish this book because you're stupid and uh, and there, there's a bunch of things like that in the book. I'm like, dude. I mean, I, I, read the room.
0: What's your assessment of his uh, focus on multi-ethnic class warfare? Talk a little bit about about that. I mean, obviously, there's a, a brewing racial crisis, and there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of political dynamics involved. Um, but I, I don't th- I don't think he has the right answers, or even the right assessment of what's happening, why it's happening, and how to overcome it.
1: Yeah, he he wants it to both ways. So first of all, whitey is to blame for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly black people cannot be expected to do anything you know, for themselves. And white people must continuously abase themselves. But more importantly, at the same time, he says, well, in this new alliance between a new aristocracy and the common people, which he also calls the common, cl- the working class, and he doesn't even understand that aside from the aristocracy, there are many levels and layers of class, you know, the working class, the underclass, the middle class but he focuses on the working class and uses that as a synonym for the common people or the masses, which is not not in fact a, a good way to do it, but whatever. He says, so he refers to a multi-ethnic, multi-racial working class, which will somehow rise up and achieve the common good together because right now their common interests are obscured by the white people and the ruling class who attempt to use a divide and conquer strategy. While well, there is some truth to that, to that part about the divide and conquer in, in the working class, I mean, you know, the Marxists are not The modern day Marxists are not entirely wrong in in some of their analysis there. The, The fact is that it's not at all clear, as much as it pains me to say it, that there is any real common, there is an adequate amount of common good or common aims between Black and white people in the non elite classes after decades of anti white hatred being whipped up by the left as a tool of political power. Yeah, of course, I mean, black and white people have the same basic interests, like let's not get in car accidents, let's not get murdered. <laughs> we all have that kind of in common. But in terms of political aims, it's not clear that as the there's enough commonality left between black and white working class, in his terms, uh, people in order to allow them to jointly work to achieve political power. Mm-hmm. His claim basically is that these people can work to achieve what he calls demotic power. He, he also has a bad habit of using overly fancy words like demotic, but demotic power meaning popular power, they can somehow achieve this, though again, there's no evidence, even if everyone who's multiracial, multi-ethnic, or one great block of working class power, they would have no impact whatsoever because their the regime has all the power. And he doesn't seem he, his claim is that somehow these people will wield their political power and the regime will simply literally dissolve itself. And all its members will give up all their power and and not cause any problem. I mean, it, uh, <laughs> It's like your Big Rock Candy Mountain kind of book. I mean, like, yeah, sure, I mean Big Rock Candy Mountain exists, I'm sure it's great to climb it and get your your Big Rock Candy, but Big Rock Candy Mountain doesn't exist, so you're not going to be climbing it. And that's what this is.
0: I think I see this a lot as, as a problem in American legal theory, political theory discourse. There's um, We live in sort of a post-rationalist stage, as Deneen would admit, Um, But there's just this complete ability, and I think it may even be a particularly American problem, but this complete inability to draw a connection between some ideal and where we're actually at and what we actually need to do to confront actual Particular specific problems that face us right now. I mean, he spends a lot of time in in Rome, in ancient Rome, the you know the Roman Republic, even some of the Greek ideals, which I think are fantastic, and people should study those and learn from those and digest those. But there's the difference between the ideal and the particular problems that we're facing today are just enormous, and if you don't have specific solutions to actually address specific problems um, the ideal is actually going to be further away than when you started
1: yes absolutely I mean, and he doesn't have any specific solutions I don't mean to berate this but he it's very it's very eggheady in the sense of as you say he focuses on these past you know, analyses he doesn't even really, really focus on history it's mostly past political philosophy which again is a defect that is mm-hmm. it, 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 it's it's well known or should be well known that the ancient Greeks, if classical Athens, looked down on philosophers. That is, philosophers were not the elite of society. Philosophers were these guys who the real elite of society thought were basically wasting everyone's time, probably corrupting the youth, definitely corrupting the youth in some cases, and weren't of any particular value to society. It's just that we now look back and we're like, well, these guys had interesting things to say, so let's focus on them. But the history is more important than philosophy. This This is a key principle that people should remember. That your you, philosophy is useful for advising the people who make history, the men mm-hmm. who make history, as I would like to say. Say the uh, the bumper sticker that says "Well-behaved women rarely make history" is totally accurate if you take out the "well-behaved" part. And so the the <laughs> philosophers advise the men who make history, and maybe they give good advice, or maybe they don't. Famously, Plato went to Syracuse uh, and uh, and to advise the uh, the tyrant Hiero. I think Carl, uh, uh, Leo Strauss wrote a, wrote a, wrote about this and barely escaped with his life because he came in with all these like fancy things and the tyrant didn't think much of them. <laughs> and he had to run away. So I mean, the, the the point is that well, there's nothing inherently wrong with a project that analyzes things using political philosophy. It's it's not really surprising to me that he doesn't come out with something that says we should do A, B, and C because fundamentally, doing A, B, and C requires conditions precedent. That Patrick Deneen, or for that matter, C.J. and Charles, are unable to to deliver. The, the history will reveal what those things are. Whether that's you know <laughs> nuclear war or you know the, the the new Franco or whatever it may be, it will reveal itself to us at that point. Philosophy may inform those things. Mm-hmm. So it, maybe it's a little bit of an unfair criticism to say, well, Patrick Deneen doesn't give us all the answers. But really, the only answer he could give us is. You know, extreme violence will result in the termination of the regime with a lot of dead people. And maybe after that, our new regime should have these principles. I mean, that's not that book is going <laughs> to not, not sell a lot of copies, or at least if it does sell off copies, people will say that he's calling for those things to happen, even though intellectually you can make the distinction that I'm not calling for these things to happen. I just expect these things to happen because it's inevitable. But you can see why he didn't do that, because he wouldn't be invited to nice places anymore. It's
0: it's interesting because one of the people that um, mainstream conservatism, mainstream academia would really have a problem with is the right wing using Carl Schmidt. Um and Carl Schmidt, I think, is is a key. you know, once you read him, once you realize his political vision, you can see in Schmidt someone who looked at, at at real political realism as the tool to confront liberalism. And that's sort of something that Schmidt brings to the table that a lot of people are uncomfortable with. And I find it ironic that that Dineen works in the same circles as Adrian Vermuel, who is, you know, allegedly, you know, a Schmidt scholar or someone who's benefited from Schmidt. And yet they they don't they they don't touch the, the a lot of political realism. They don't touch things about what actually should be done besides various, you know, constitutional tinkerings. Um, but if you can strip away the ideals, if you can strip away, you know, the philosophy and just look at the historical dynamics of things, you can see in Schmidt someone who actually informs us of of how to approach political problems in a realistic way. The problem is, is that a lot of the solutions necessary are are not consistent with uh, a tenured position at <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I, I, I'm a huge Carl Schmidt fan. I have thoughts on most of his important books, and I'm, I'm working through essentially mm-hmm. all of his works that are translated into english because my german is basically non-existent uh, but your point is well taken i mean i, I you, you probably shouldn't bring up Ramuel to me because i think he's a, you know a stupid midget clown and uh and, and you know, it, that's it, why i brought him up <laughs> well you know, he blocked me on twitter when i had like 150 followers and i still <laughs> I'm like, I'm like I'm not quite sure how that happened, but you know, anybody—it's not like I was attacking Vermeule. So the, the idea that uh, that someone who who claims to be interested in open discourse doesn't want to, you know, Charles Haywood to see what Vermuel has to say is just kind of indicative of of the the kind of approach. But Vermeule is a, is the classic example of—I mean, I don't know whether Vermeule is a fed or not—a fed in the sense of basically being actively in the pocket of the regime and an attempt to destroy or harm. Mm-hmm. post-liberal right. I think that's probably untrue because the fact is Vermuel has no influence under on anything. I mean Vermeule has influence in a group of about 15 people who get together with Patrick Neen and talk about things. And, and they they uh, I once um I to watched a debate between uh Glad and Papen who I like fine and uh Deneen and confusing two debates, but and Papen and somebody else debating, and Julius Krein, the American affairs guy, debating the editors of Dissent Magazine, which is an old line left magazine. This was 2016. And they all got they got crushed because the Dissent people, they were and Papen were trying to reach out to the left for common ground. The Dissent people just wanted them to abase mm-hmm. themselves and adopt left demands. And they couldn't understand, again, in your point, the, the Schmidtian approach that the left adopted, that they thought that talking about there are points of philosophical commonality of what, what they were there to do. And Vermule is kind of the same way in the in the sense that, but no one listens to I mean, seriously, I mean, what does Vermule? I mean, does anyone actually maybe I, maybe I'm missing it because <laughs> they blocked me on Twitter, but as far as I know, Vermule doesn't do anything. He has that Substack which I subscribed to for a while, but it was unreadable because it was just this turgid kind of you know inanity. Um sorry I'm being like super negative and mean to people who you know probably you want to be friends with, uh or at least me? Not, not alienate. I mean uh- yeah I, I like to I run around alienating people, not because I'm, I'm a troll or mean to them, but I, I I'm independently able to exercise the judgment that I have. I don't have a tenured position or something so you know Denine has to, and all these people have to be nice to each other because in blurb each other's books and so on because it's a small world and you know you never know when you're going to need help from these people. So I this is a long and rambling way of saying I think Well
0: I will say that uh, this is a <laughs> this is this is a chronicles magazine podcast and we're defenders of of Sam Francis and Paul Gottfried and As so we're not we're not interested in, um, you know, getting the the, the well-favored praise of, of Vermeule. So you're saying no?
1: I, I appreciate it. that's not really what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you, know, you don't want to just randomly alienate people. Uh, sure. you know, it's, as, as I always like to joke, and it's true, I took you know, Jordan Peterson before he kind of went off the rails, uh, was always pushing this five factor personality test that rates you on different things. And one of them is agreeableness, which is not. Whether you're socially agreeable, but your conformance to social norms, mm. and I got an actual zero score. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, I just yeah. don't care. But that's because I have the luxury of not having to care. If you sure. work, I mean, these people have to put bread on the table, and so I I understand that they kind of pull their punches. But really, someone should have taken Danine aside, back to the point at hand, and said, "Look, dude, this book is not accomplishing what you say it's accomplishing. So you need to rework it." So it says something that's of actual value rather than spending a decade of your life and ending in this, in this kind of puddle of goo, you need to actually be, but no one said that to him. They all probably sat around and, and congratulated him on his insight. It's it's kind of sad. I mean, you, you need friends who will tell you this book is not doing it. This yeah. book is not working, but apparently he doesn't have that, or he rejected that advice if he got it.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think about the phrase and the concept of, um, I don't know how you would say it. Is it Aristopopulism?
1: Yes, that's his phrase. Talk about that. Aristopopulism is—I believe he coined the phrase—and it's a good phrase. Is this idea that we need a an alliance of high and low? I mean, in the Bertrand Juvenal kind of uh, kind of uh, frame, though not the high and low alliance we have now of the underclass with the elites, but rather the aristocrats, true aristocrats, as opposed to uh, an oligarchy, aristocrats and the common people, which again he defines the working class but he, definitional aside from the definition he means a combination and he he kind of he, he explains the difference but never really comes down definitively on one side or the other of a blending of these two things or a joint action of these two things. Uh, you can look at it different ways, but either way, the, these two groups will act in concert for the common good, each improving the other, lifting the, the other, other person up, like kind of like a you know, good male-female relationship. Everybody improves the other person, and brings that person closer to theosis in the orthodox sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I, and you, the problem is that there's no actual examples of this in human history. Uh, Maybe the American founding comes the closest, but the fact is that the elites always rule, and you want them to keep in mind the interests of the common people, and you want them to listen to the common people and have some protections for the common people, and you want them to have, uh, in particular, structural protections. So, for example, in the medieval uh, world in Western Europe, custom was what protected the common people. That it prevented uh it, whether the monarch or people lower lower down in the elites from just randomly abusing the common people. I mean, what you see in movies about how the common people were abused constantly randomly by 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 nobles is a, a complete fiction. obviously those things did happen, but the fact is that those those societies were, were worked extremely well in the sense that denine is 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 going after aristopopulism. But that's only because the aristocracy, was good, not because the common people had some power over the aristocrats. It, mm-hmm. The common people never have any power over the elite. That's the whole point of elite theory. That is, the, the, every you know, the, it's like uh, Michelle's Michel's, uh, iron law of oligarchy. Every organization is always, always run by a small group of people because that's the way it is. And there's no historical counterexamples. Mm-hmm. Even Greek city-states that for a while had democracy, no doubt were also run by a subset of people within that, even if theoretically everyone had equal political power. So aristopopulism is a nice idea, but again, Dineen is not a history guy, and he doesn't give any examples of how this has worked in the past because he couldn't give any examples of how this has worked in the past, Mm -hmm. which makes it basically a fantasy, and we're back to Big Rock Candy Mountain. I'm all for everybody in society and the elites in particular working for the common good, which is the exact opposite of what we have now, but that's not because... On any society of any scale, I mean, it might work on the family level, obviously, or in a tribe or in a in a clan, uh, but beyond that scale, you just can't have these groups of people all all ruling together in concert for the common good. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, I like the phrase; it's a good phrase, but I wouldn't apply it the way he does.
0: Yeah, the thing that I've um, you know often thought about is is the fact that it's, it's sort of rationalistic to um uh, you know to, to to ask for or expect. Um, uh, some leader to come up that has his incentives, like 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 mental incentives, that he's willing to do the right thing. It's actually kind of like an enlightenment way of thinking that the person has to intellectually, you know, um you know, want the common good, these these aristocrats, these leaders, these rules. they have to be working on behalf of some without any political dynamics or political incentives or real world incentives that are driving this commonality between the the interests of the people and the interests of the elite. You're not going to have that. To expect them no. to have, um, you know, goodwill is a very enlightenment way of, of thinking about the ruling class.
1: Yes, uh, that's exactly right. I think it's a great way of putting it, and I think it's also very difficult to have this without a strong religious sensibility in the both the aristocracy and, and the people. the The example I always return to is Charlemagne. Who mm-hmm. it, it, it's indisputable that Charlemagne and other medieval rulers viewed his obligation as doing his best to save the souls of the people, uh, not just to improve their material, uh, but he was broadly responsible for all the people under his rule and would personally answer to Christ for his, for how successful he was in that. Mm-hmm. Unlike your average non-aristocrat who was only responsible for what he did, Charlemagne had these additional burdens. Of course, he had additional compensation because he got to be the king <laughs> right. and all the stuff that went along with that, which of course he behaved badly upon. It. But but fundamentally, you want an aristocracy that views itself as an aristocracy and that most all the members are either religious or the ones that aren't religious act as if they're religious because that's the expectation. And religion in this case means Christianity. I can't really speak to how this would work. And for example, in Japanese uh, society, because the, the culture is, is quite different, uh, but there's not going to be a Japanese society in a hundred years. So it doesn't matter. Um, and uh, so, I, but I think you're right. It, it is an enlightenment kind of Kind of thing. And uh, again, it's just a defect in the book. I mean, I I, now I'm being, I'm sounding super negative, but I guess I am super negative about the book if I'm being honest.
0: Well, I mean, as we talked about in the beginning, you know, the good things about his mentality have been said in a prior book. And and the point of this one is to just look at, uh, and this is a hard topic. What should be done? I think, I think this is really difficult. We should be fair to the fact that this question is not one that's easy to answer. There is no blueprint for, you know, historically for dealing with historically unique situations you yes, know so absolutely. Is, it's fair to struggle with these answers um another thing that you talk about is um you know his inability to you know properly engage with the concepts of um heterogeneity in terms of culture um you know he wants to see the working class as sort of just this um this one group of interests without you know without um Divisions within it that are sort of mutually exclusive in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, and he won't he won't address those because he has to think of the working class as completely um, homogene you know, homogenous uh, in in their own interests and what what they define as the common good. And I think that relates to, you know, his his refusal to struggle with ethnic conflict in America.
1: Yes, I mean, an- anybody who is not insane or dishonest knows that diversity is the very opposite of our strength. That beyond a certain point, diversity tears at the sinews of a society and no society that is overly diverse can be successful because there is no common good. And I mean, you you can't have a common good when people are radically different. That doesn't mean you can't have to have absolute homogeneity, but you have to have a dominant religion, probably a dominant ethnic group, almost certainly a dominant ethnic group, uh, and common common loves, common enjoyments, common goals. Those Mm -hmm. things are absolutely necessary for any societal success and certainly necessary to distill a common good out of it. Yet he makes literally no effort to advert to this, and in fact, denies it functionally, though he doesn't discuss it specifically because that might be racist. And so uh, he, he, he talks about common good, but he never talks about what the common good might be, except for something that magically arises out of the healing circuit healing circle where aristocrats and the working class all sit down and hug it out. I mean, that's, it, it just, it, it, the, fundamentally, if he was writing an honest book, he would probably write something like, um, well, you know, the regime needs to go away. That's probably going to involve a bunch of violence. Sorry about that. After that, there's not going to be a United States, but there'll probably be some successor states. Those will probably be sorted uh, by obviously by political belief, probably to some extent by religion and ethnicity and race. Uh, and those people, those individual successor states will be able to perhaps through their elites uh, and you know, with some cooperation with the common people, deciding what the common good is and implementing that. And some of those will be successful and some of them will be disastrously like failures because that's the way the world goes. But he didn't write any of that. But that's that's what he should have written, basically, with a lot of you know, details around it.
0: Mm-hmm. It's so it's it's interesting when I think of the the integralist phenomena, right? That's the sort of they're very historically minded. I mean, they have their minds sort of set in classical Europe. Um, but it's 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 fascinating to me the extent to which they deny that. Um, you know, my like uh, my, minority Americans, they just assume that these people are going to be on board with with that sort of mindset, and it's just so obvious to me that they have no reason to appreciate. Or work toward the remembrance of the historical consciousness of High Europe, um, which is very much, you know, like a like like classical America. They they could talk about that, but the idea that like you you can just erase historical roots and expect all of these different peoples to work together for the common good today—it's just—it uh, seems uh, ridiculous to me.
1: I like High Europe as much as the next guy, but the fact is nobody in America knows anything about high Europe anymore, and more to the point, high Europe doesn't matter. I mean, Europe itself is over. I mean, entirely mm-hmm. over. I mean, it's not, and there's not going to be any rebirth in Europe, and it's going to be swamped by people from elsewhere, and that's going to be the end, end of Europe, which may or may not be our, our fate here, less likely to be our fate here. But we need a new thing for a new time, and we should remember the principles and the history that informs us for creating a new society. But I don't think that the new society is going to relate to where people came from vis-a-vis high Europe. I think that it's entirely possible, for example, to have a society that has some degree of ethnic and racial diversity uh, where, I mean, the classic example is the Ottomans. The Ottomans ran in the millet system where basically people who were very diverse within the larger framework engaged in a type of self-governance. Mm-hmm. Where when that subgroupings determine the common good for those people, and they paid their taxes and they got in the military, but otherwise they ruled themselves. And there are other examples of this even in America. You have like the Orthodox Jews in upstate New York who have their own towns and so on. You can imagine a society if if the successor states to America were quite large, they would still necessarily have a fair amount of of ethnic and racial diversity. I think you probably do have to have a dominant, uh ethnic and racial group um in, in the sense of the people who tend to uh, form the ruling class but that doesn't mean you have to have some kind of ethnostate those things are silly ethno states don't tend to work de- don't tend to work in practice so i i think what that would be would have to be determined organically and ultimately people would would sort themselves they would choose well let's say you're 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 yeah, you're you're a a guy of, Third generation Mexican in a place that a bunch of white people are running now uh, in some subset. You know, maybe you like this. Maybe this is great. Maybe you like. I mean, just just because your your background is Mexican doesn't mean you can't fit in there. Um. So I think the the this you don't want to overemphasize these things, but you don't want to be like Denine and say that white people and black people and Mexican people all have the same background and interest because that's clearly false. You have to advert to the fact that even. Even as someone who's from Mexico and is a tenth generation person views the world and has different different values and so on, almost certainly than a white person. And that that's not being mean to that to those people. It's just it's something you have to recognize when you're setting up your political system.
0: Mm-hmm. And setting up your political system—that's an interesting phrase. Do you do you think that um, he advances a true regime change, or does he advance sort of um, something that would result in a, in a lot of continuity?
1: Well, he, the latter, because it wouldn't change anything. I mean, what he what he recommends is that the current regime, what he calls a tyranny, continue in power indefinitely, stamping its boot on the face of people, which he hopes is not going to be Patrick Deneen. I mean, that's what it boils down to. He, he's afraid of the regime, is my read, and he doesn't want to be identified as a regime enemy or have to read in the newspapers or in the New York Times about how Patrick Dineen, you know, he, he associates with you know, people who have been denoted racists. By uh, by the regime, and so he, he needs to make sure that he he. he this is this is no different than 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 writing under communism, not mm-hmm. necessarily under Stalin, because as people have pointed out, the regime is so feminized, it's unable to uh, unable to actually execute competent competent right. uh, you know, disappearing <laughs> of people, but the. Uh, it, 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 When your job and your livelihood is dependent upon not being seen in a certain way by the regime, which Janine's most definitely is, I mean, for all I know, Janine has a giant pot of gold he got from his grandparents, but assuming he needs to earn a living in order to put bread on the table, he cannot afford to be seen as uh, hanging out with Bronze Age pervert, or some, you know, (laughs) extremist right type, or for that matter, Haywood. I mean, I'm not sure if Haywood counts as extremist rightist, uh, but, uh, you know, he doesn't want to be seen as that guy. So his it's to answer your question. It's continuity because it's a farce. I mean, again, I sound really mean, and I guess I am mean. But his call for regime change is a call for permanent subordination of everybody who thinks like Patrick Denine to the current regime, only worse than it is now. Which isn't really a very great project, frankly.
0: Right. Where do you see things going? You're you're optimistic about America. <laughs> you're you're more optimistic about America than you are Western Europe. Um, but so, what, what do you see? You see the regime is fragile. But where do we go from here?
1: Well, I, I mean, my, my I see two things. So they're they're the same thing at root. I see the regime being fragile. Mean that is to say, not lacking power, but unable to withstand any kind of crisis, and therefore crumbling necessarily in any kind of significant crisis, whether that's losing a war, getting hit by an asteroid, or a real pandemic, or or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I think the oh, I, I, what that would result in would be a bunch a, a free for all with people trying to create a new regime and grab power and so on. But uh, the other thing that I, my kind of constant prediction is that the, and because based upon history, uh, I give various examples, my classic example that I like to give is the Finnish civil war of 1919, but it is it is definitely the case back to the enlightenment and liberalism that the, a, a key or core habit of the left liberalism, enlightenment thinkers, what have you, uh, is always that if, to Because they see the world as an arrow of progress leading towards utopia through the implementation of emancipation and egalitarianism, if that is threatened in any meaningful way, if they perceive that the ratchet is moving backward, they inevitably begin a war or start mm-hmm. violence at a at very minimum. So if i my my prediction which i stand by is that and that is, is itself also a crisis to link it to the first part that were there ever to be the case that the left's power were perceived to be eroding then the the left is likely to start a war which will lead to unpredictable consequences and ultimately to the to the collapse of the regime uh, i mean so for example if like i don't like trump you know Trump has all the defects that Trump has but Trump is a fire starter if Trump gets elected even against the fortification of the election uh and, and you know President Biden is de-elected in 2024 I guarantee that the left will immediately engage in mass violence because mm-hmm. that's the way, way it goes and that kind of thing is what would lead ultimately to uh to regime collapse and some kind of regime change that doesn't mean we're going to get something better uh, uh the my underlying theory to advert to what you said about the optimism is I think there's a lot of good left in America but I do I think that there's a lot of pain between here and there between some form future form of let's call it aristopopulism uh, with the regime having disappeared the regime disappearing here means the regime all the assets of regime functionaries get confiscated. They all get exiled or sent to the country, forbidden to participate in politics, forbidden to touch the internet. If they're not in prison or otherwise punished, I mean, that's the kind of things that result in regime change, not mm-hmm. having a bigger House of Representatives.
0: <laughs> exactly right. Well said. I think that's a great way. Um, <laughs> I think that's a great way to conclude it. So, I mean, the point is not to be anti-Denine, but it is difficult to talk about themes like regime change. I don't think he lives up to the to the phrase. You know that's that's sort of the point you know these are difficult conversations but regime change is serious business and i don't know think i don't know if Deneen is is arguing seriously you know about, you know about that so um do read his earlier book it's better than his his newest book and we're not anti denine here although uh, you know paul gottfried is going to enjoy our criticism uh, <laughs> of this book and and the integrals in general but um anyways you pitch whatever you want to pitch and i appreciate the conversation
1: well no i I write at theworthyhouse.com, which is all free. I just am yeah, I writing. I have a lot of stuff there on a lot of different topics, which I some of them are interesting to some people, some of them aren't. So there's there's five hundred something lengthy pieces to read. And I show up on Twitter occasionally. I'm not really a hot takes person on Twitter, but I show up occasionally on on Twitter at uh, at the Worthy House, Charles Haywood. If you're interested.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you, Charles. I enjoyed the conversation. And next time we'll have you and Paul. Maybe we can do a follow up conversation, but he's been wanting to talk about them a little bit. I know people have been wanting to hear what he has to say, but maybe we'll do a Schmidt conversation because you've been going through concept of the political, right? Uh,
1: I have, though, and I'm very up for that conversation, though. I, I would be intimidated to have a conversation with with uh, with Gottfried on uh <laughs> on Carl Schmidt, because you know, he, he's forgotten much more about Carl Schmidt than I have ever known. So I, I'm not sure that I would shine in that conversation, but maybe I could learn something. So yes, I, I would love to do that.
0: Yeah, well, good. Okay, well, it's good to hear from you and we'll have this uh, this uh, conversation up within the next couple of days. Awesome. All right, talk to you later. See ya. All right, I'll end the recording right there. But um, again, thanks for coming on. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, we did did not not get
1: I almost worked in the Supreme Court decision at the end there, because one of my points. uh, Oh, I forgot. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is actually, I I know we are running up on time, I didn't want to extend it. But that is, for example, if that was a real decision that was really was perceived as rolling back the ability of the left implement their their race hatred, uh, then that would be something that they might, would engage in violence over. The reality is, of course, this will have no impact whatsoever on their behavior. That is, they'll continue discriminating. White people won't do anything about it. Exactly. Either. And so, so it's it's basically a farce. But- I think it's I
0: think it's dangerous because what it actually does, it's going to make colorblindness something that's like sort of the new letter of the law again, and conservatives are going to adhere to that. And they're not going to participate in political reality, whereas the left, which doesn't care about the law, is going to do it anyways. So it doesn't serve any True. function.
1: Though, no, if if they'd Adhering to that is bad, certainly, but if they use it as a legal weapon, that is, if they use it on the, as the basis of attacking things, but they're not going to do that. They're going to say they're going to you know, you know, bow and scrape and say, well, you know, I know you're obviously screaming against white people, but that's OK, because like Patrick Dean says, you know, some guy who's not related to me was mean to some slaves 150 years ago. So, you know, why would I file this lawsuit? um hmm. but i talked about this in another podcast which is not out yet um the american warrior society podcast at, at some length which is that i will say that it surprises me that the it's anomalous that the regime is so all powerful yet the supreme court uh, you know the constitution is basically a dead letter yet the supreme court isn't a dead letter and keeps coming out with things that are fundamentally opposed to the right project guns is the most most is the prime prime example but this, mm. without the the left engaging in violence, so maybe this cu- cuts against my thesis, but we'll see.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it, it'll it'll be interesting. But um, the, of course, the you know the leftist, you know, journalist freak out is always always enjoyable. So
1: I I was out out doing stuff on the farm. So I, I right before we got on, I saw that this had happened. I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen the freak out, but I assume the right. freak out is ongoing.
0: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> ongoing, and it's always a source of gulag. Entertainment, So that's yeah, what so I, I enjoy. I'll,
1: I'll go check that out now. Though I try to stay off Twitter. I mean, I, I was off it. I think we talked about this off uh, on the Contra Mundum. Uh, I was off Twitter for all of Lent and, you know, I felt a lot better for it. though less well-informed, but I felt better spiritually, certainly.
0: Of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, be, <laughs>
1: being well-informed
0: is just inviting yourself to, you know, negative spirits. Right. And- I mean, who
1: needs to be informed about, you know, crannies, yeah. drag queens abusing children? I mean, what the hell? <laughs> I, see, I
0: see more disgusting content sexual content from conservatives warning against it than i see from the left you know oh, so absolutely. it's yeah but I mean, yeah
1: at some point you're like mm. anyway so yeah okay well thank you very much for having me on Looking thank you for
0: to- thank you for coming talk to you soon like you mm. bye-bye